Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're concluding the regular narrative lectionary season with the Pentecost texts, Acts 2, 1-4, and Romans 8, 14-39. We talk about God's desire for the redemption of all creation, which has suffered under human neglect since the time of Adam. Paul envisions the day that we humans wake up and realize that we were created not to serve sin, but to tend creation in order to restore the world around us. Until then, creation and we ourselves groan with labor pains, Paul says, as we await the redemption of our bodies. We can see that new life is possible, but the pain and danger we are experiencing in the meantime are all too real. And so we live with hope for a world that we know is possible, but one that we cannot yet see. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm trying to Bob finish. I'm actually drinking a beer right now during this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. He's not really. Yeah, it's too, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't drink on the podcast. I'm actually trying to finish. That could be a special episode. Oh yeah, you know that um, Bible word drinking game, drunk history. Have you ever seen drunk history where people like experts on history get super drunk and then they talk about things about history? I've not. I have not seen that. It's hilarious. It started as a YouTube thing, and then I think it It sort of turned into an actual series, like on Netflix and stuff. But I had a friend who wanted us to do drunk theology a few years back, and I was just like, I don't. I feel like you can't get away with drunk theology the same way that you can get away with drunk history. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is a certain um, gravitas that uh, one has to be careful with (laughs) around these issues. Yeah, yeah. So we'll do caffeinated, caffeinated Bible today. Actually, I'm not sufficiently caffeinated today, just to be perfectly honest with you. This is just, we're just, yeah, (laughs) we're just, we're dragging. I will say my, this morning on the way to school, my 16-year-old said out of the blue, how's Bible worm? What? And I was like, how's Bible worm? I don't know. It's great. You know, blah, blah, blah. And so I told him that we were doing this. We're doing a conference in November for a particular group of folks in Nebraska. And he was like, Wait, people listen to this podcast? What do you mean you're doing a you're doing a retreat? He was like, people who aren't at your synagogue listen to this, and I was like, I don't think anyone at my synagogue listens to oh, this. Yeah, yeah. I impressed my 16 year old. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're getting yeah, uh, yeah, for like 30 seconds, and then I was totally embarrassing again. Yeah, that's awesome. My five year old was impressed when she was like three, and she would walk around the house singing the Bible Worm theme song and stuff. But I don't know if she's impressed anymore. Oh, well. That's okay. What can you do? Maybe if you did worm voices. If I dressed like the worm. (laughs) It would be amazing. Also, uh, after our conversation last week about me being the worm, our Mm -hmm. wonderful sound editor, Joel, I think it was actually his daughter, 
made mm-hmm. uh, little memes of me as the worm or the worm with yes. my face on it, which was really kind of pretty amazing. We should post those somewhere probably. We should definitely post those somewhere. <laughs> and that story is like my favorite thing that has happened in maybe a year. It's a really good story. Yeah. Really, really good. Yeah. Bobby, it's our last episode of the season. It's our last episode of, of the regular season. Of yes, the we're regular gonna, season. We're going to be in overtime next week. But yes, yeah. we'll be in the playoffs. This is our Pentecost. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means, really. This is our Pentecost episode, which is the last episode for the narrative lectionary cycle. And then we've got our summer series on biblical women. I've got a few uh, episodes yeah. of that coming up in the summer. Yeah. So yeah, we've made it to Pentecost. We uh, are going to start in Acts chapter two, which is the Pentecost story. And then we're going to finish up our exploration of Romans with Romans eight fourteen to 39. Amy, I feel like we have this conversation every year. We probably do, but I'm I'm so interested because, you know, I think a lot of times in the church, we just think of Pentecost as like a Christian holiday, which I mean, which it is, but it Mm -hmm. also has its roots in the Jewish holiday. Yeah, it maps onto the Jewish calendar. So can you just talk a little bit about what Jews are celebrating in this moment and things that might be relevant about that? Yeah. So um, it's so interesting. So the, the Jewish holiday that sort of aligns calendarly. That's not a word. Like aligns on the calendar with Pentecost is Shavuot. And it's so interesting because Shavuot already on the in the Jewish world has sort of two levels on which you could sort of understand and celebrate yeah. it. There's an agricultural level, in which case, like it's a harvest. This is the next harvest. We had a harvest at Passover and we have a harvest at Shavuot. And then we have another harvest in the fall that's Sukkot. And then there's also a layer on which sort of it is it is mapped onto the story of the Jewish people. And so this is the holiday where we mark the receiving of the Torah or yeah. Moses receives the Torah at Sinai. So so if you try to imagine like, you know, back around Passover time, there's the crossing of the Red Sea, the escape from Egypt, you know, they're wandering through the desert. Um, and then a little bit of time passes, but not too much time passes before there is the giving of the Torah at Sinai. So that's that's the holiday that we're celebrating in the Jewish world. It is marked with it is such a strange conglomeration of things. I would say a lot of Torah study. Um, there's a tradition called um, Tikkun Leil, where you stay up all night and study Torah yeah. all night. And I, I'll just say I'm teaching a subject for that at a local congregation that I might actually be burned at the stake for talking about this. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a super like feminist push on some stuff. Oh, so nice. Yeah. Wish me chazak, some strength here. And the other tradition is that you eat dairy products. Oh, yeah. I'm not really sure why we do that, but there's a lot of cheesecake and blintzes and ice cream. Oh, yeah. I like Associated with Shavuot. So, so there's that this span there. Does that have anything to do with like the land of milk and honey or something like that? I or mean, it- maybe. I feel like... People have come up, it's like many traditions, the tradition exists, and then you try to find a reason that you can make logical sense of the tradition. Yeah. And I would, I would say that, I would, I would guess like most holidays or many holidays have some kind of food thing associated with them in the Jewish world. And so we already have a meat holiday, that's Purim. And so this is a milk holiday. And then there's the, you know, matzah holiday and the fried holiday. Like, it, I don't know. I don't know what to tell <laughs> that you. Sounds Judaism's, amazing. 
yeah. is a peoplehood. It's not just a religion and peoplehoods have food. And so there is a, there is a food. Yeah. <laughs> That's really helpful, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for all that. The, um, the word Pentecost, of course, in Greek simply means the 50th. And so it's a reference mm. to the 50th day after Passover. And so when you say some time has passed in the tradition, 50 days have passed. And yes. so we've been counting the Omer, right? All this. Yes, we've been counting. Time. Yep. Yep. Seven weeks. Pentecost is the way that Greek speaking Jews would probably have referred to Shavuot. And mm. so it kind of, when uh, the Jewish tradition reverted to doing things in Hebrew, pretty much just overall, that sort of calling of it as Pentecost diminished. But the Christians mm. picked up that. And so it's not that the Christians have created a different name or they're celebrating a different holiday. It's just that they have taken the Greek form of the Hebrew holiday and they have preserved it and then transformed it, obviously, yeah. uh, to make it mean something something else. But it really does hold on to like that idea of divine revelation, which yeah. is, you know, in a very different form than what we get in the in the Jewish tradition. But but yeah. It's I think that's exactly revelation. right. Divine revelation. And then I think Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, is the formation of the people of Israel in a different mm-hmm. way than they were formed before. Is that is that fair mm-hmm. to say? Like now they've got the Torah, sort of the identity. Yeah, it does sort of, it, it, it really sort of fundamentally changes their relationship to God. Yeah. You know? I think the same thing is true here. So we've got divine revelation, and then we've got the transformation of the relationship of Jesus' followers, what becomes mm-hmm. the Christian church to God, mm-hmm. now based on the spirit. And so the Torah given to Israel becomes sort of a parallel for the spirit given to the early church, and that sort of shapes that holiday up that way. Okay, this is an impossible question. You might even delete the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> okay. Why does it map onto the Jewish holidays? Like is like is it because that because the early church was so Jewish? I think that's right. Yeah, I think that the early church was Jewish. The book of Acts in particular is trying to be clear that what happens with the Christian story is not a a new like a starting mm-hmm. over or like something mm-hmm. that comes out of the blue, but is the logical continuation of what came before. And so you've got this, I mean, we've already seen the transformation of Passover into the Lord's Supper and Easter. And Mm -hmm. then now we've got the transformation of Shavuot into the giving of the spirit on Pentecost. So it's recognizing its roots in the Jewish tradition, but then showing how it's doing something that's fulfilling or expanding or something. Yeah, It's it's trying to be clear that it's not just a new thing starting out of nowhere. I think that's how I would, I think that's how I would read it. Mm. I guess the theological way to ask that is why did God send the Holy Spirit on Shavuot, which frames that question. I mean, yeah, I think it's a really different framing. I think the answer comes out pretty close to the same, but it's a different way of thinking about it. But if I had asked it that way, you would have flipped it the other way. I no would, matter I would how totally. I ask it, you would have flipped it. <laughs> I always flip everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, all right, Amy. So we've just got this little section from Acts 2, 1 to 4. This is the story that's sort of read every Pentecost Mm -hmm. in the narrative lectionary and probably in most Christian churches. 
Uh, so I'll pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm reading the Common English Bible. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. The, the they there is the 12 disciples now. They've elected the 12th one to replace Judas. They were down to 11. In mm-hmm. chapter 1, they got the 12th. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. there's the 12 disciples and maybe some others gathered in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Okay, so this the way this is set up in the narrative lectionary is where this story is trying to give us a framework for reading Romans. And so I don't want us to delve too, too deeply into everything we could pull out of Acts chapter two as a whole. But as you're thinking about this sort of introduction to the idea of Pentecost, you're connecting it with your sort of traditions about Shavuot. What stands out to you just about what happens here, how this is narrated, what happens to the disciples? I think what's standing out to me, Bobby, is, you know, I, I, uh, I have notes in the margins from the last time we read this text, and I see that what stood out to me last time was the presence of this big wind, this yeah. like Ruach Elohim, like God's presence sort of in this in this wind. And I will tell you what's standing out to me now is still that, but also the flames and yeah. like kind of thinking about the way that Revelation is described certainly at the receiving of the Torah in these sort of like kind of crazy weather events, yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, sort of what this is. But in this case, it's not, you know, it's not that when the Israelites are in the desert, like God's presence is indicated in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right. And so I'm thinking about this fire, but the fact that everyone gets their own individual one, which feels really different. Mm-hmm to me in terms of what, I don't know. It, it That just feels really, that feels really different to me. Yeah, that's an interesting observation because to me, the way I would read that is there is, like it's all one fire, but it they each get their own individual flame of the fire. Mm-hmm. So there, in my reading anyway, there's like a unity to it, but there is definitely also the individuality there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that in the text, do you think, or is that just like, I have a, I definitely have a theology that's informing, either informing or informed by that reading. What is your, what does your translation say? Mine has that as tongues and that gets confusing to me. The, the CEV says they saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. Yeah, that sounds kind of like individual flames of fire, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess in the next bit, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah. Yes, yeah, they're all filled with the same thing. Yes, I I certainly would agree with that. I certainly would agree with that. But there is an individualization or a a personal individual relationship to that Holy Spirit that is happening here, that is highlighted here, like really raised up here. And again, it's not that like, that wasn't understood to be happening for the Israelites. It was just not the not the scent, not the thing you raise up. Right. You know, the, again, like I mentioned peoplehood before, like the peoplehood was a really big part of it. And here, and here that's not the central thing at this moment. Yeah. It's so interesting to me that the thing that the Holy Spirit first empowers people to do is to speak in other languages. Mm. This is not the gift of tongues 
Paul will talk later in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere about the ability to speak in the tongues of angels, glossolalia. This is not that. This is speaking other human languages. So they can speak mm. to across cult- lines of cultural division, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about how you would think, interpret that like the first thing the Holy Spirit does is let people talk in other languages? I mean, in some ways, I feel like it speaks directly to what I was pointing out before about sort of raising, about sort of individual versus peoplehood. But yeah. like the fact that that this, you know, budding church is is intentionally pulling people who come from many peoples and have many cultures and languages. And, okay, you're going to need to check me on this because maybe this is wrong. But it's not it's not asking them to leave that in order to become a different people. Like it, it is, it is asking them to, to, I don't know, to form a church, but it's not asking them to renounce their Romanness or right. their whatever Ethiopianness or whatever it is. And so then that, that presents the distinct issue that now people are across cultures and across languages trying to share in this vision of what the world ought to be. And so I think that's a pretty good first gift. Yeah. I love the way you say that. Yeah. And it's not that it didn't give people the ability to understand what people said in other languages. It actually gives the disciples the ability to speak. So they've had to like take on the culture of the people to whom they are going to speak in Mm. order to communicate. And so we've created a multicultural multilingual community, which involves people learning about, or at least being gifted with the language and the culture of somebody else. So it's Mm -hmm. not, you're exactly right. It's not homogenizing everyone to the disciples Galilean culture. It is helping Mm -hmm. the disciples sort of move beyond their own cultural limitations and engage people in their own language and, and idiom. Yeah. It's a really beautiful idea. Amy, there is a whole lot more that one can say about the Pentecost story in Acts chapter two, but there's also a whole lot one needs to say about Romans eight. And so <laughs> I, I think know, I, I might be ready to move because us I understand on. this part better. Romans eight <laughs> is hard, Bobby. Are there things that you want to make sure to pull out of Acts two before we make that, that jump? Oh, I, I, I think we have pulled out the things that feel most resonant for me, at least in this first little, this first little section that we yeah. get in our reading today. The, This little four verses of Acts 2 is trying to focus us, I think, on the gift of the Spirit, which is what Pentecost is about, right? Is what what happens when the church receives the gift of the Spirit. And then Paul is also thinking about what what the Spirit does. And so that's the connection, I think, between Acts 2 and Romans 8. Paul has his own vision of a Spirit-filled community and what that means for the community and for the world. And that's how we're getting to Romans 8. At least that's how I'm getting to Romans 8. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to start with this brief little section in Romans 8, 14 to 17. It's it's a little hard to know how to divide this reading, but that's what I'm going to do. Long. I, yeah. It's long, it's yeah. long, and I'm going to read us a long middle section, but I'm going to read us a short first section. Okay. So I'm in Romans 8, 14. All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. 
The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. Hmm. What a lovely opening statement. Isn't that first verse beautiful? It is. It really is beautiful. This idea of being God's sons and daughters. I wasn't sure where you were going to start. Can you, can you talk more about the ways in which that strikes you as lovely? I mean, my translation is for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Mm. Like the entity that you, this is such a sort of, uh, probably boring, non-poetic way to say it, but like the entity that leads you is your parent entity. Like if you, if you are led by God, you are, you are the offspring of God in the world. And that's just how it works. And it's like, and it's, it's a very like broad and open statement. Like anyone can (laughs) fit into this, but it, it really, it goes back. Like we've talked a lot about like, what is our orientation in the world? What is really leading you? What is your, What's your North Star? What's your parent entity? Like, what is what is the thing that you choose to follow? That's what your parent is. I just think that's lovely. Yeah, I, I love the way you said that. It contrasts that with a spirit of slavery that leads you mm. back into fear. Yeah. And then says again, but you have a spirit that shows you are adopted as God's children. Do you have thoughts about that imagery of a spirit of slavery and fear Mm. versus a spirit of adoption? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind with a spirit of slavery, I know that in the Jewish community, we talk a lot about why the Jews had to, why the Israelites had to wander in the desert for so long. And one of the common answers is that, you know, and throughout that time, they keep wanting to go back to Egypt. Yes. Because that is, that's what they're used to. Like that, that's the world as they understand it. And that it took 40 years for them to reorient 40 years. And really the the death of the generation that had come out of Egypt, you know, to, to really reorient themselves and say, um, we're not, we're not children of slavery anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thought in my head, and I don't know if this is intentional in here or not, but would be a little more of a jab towards Judaism, <laughs> which is that, uh, you know, when that when the Jews are brought out, uh, when the, the Israelites, they really are not Jews yet, right. when the Israelites are brought out of Egypt, the idea is not so they can be like free as a bird and do whatever they want. It's that they will not be slaves to Pharaoh, but they will be servants, avadim, yeah. to God. Yeah. And so I don't know if this is intending to jab at that model um, or that understanding of our relationship to God or or not. But I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's worth, going. absolutely worth considering. I, I really love where you started there. And to me, that the image that comes to mind and the sl- uh, spirit of slavery leading you back into fear is exactly that. I think it's at the beginning of Exodus 16, like right when they've come, like literally the next chapter after they've come mm-hmm. across the sea, it's the beginning of that manna story. The people are afraid and they're saying, I wish we could go back to Egypt because at least we knew where our next meal was coming from. Right. Which I, like you totally understand, or at least I do, how they yes. how they get there. Like there's so much anxiety about how we're going to take care of ourselves. And so this passage is saying in the same way, like I think this is retelling that Exodus story. 
You are, that is not your home. You are not supposed to be in Egypt. You are not supposed to be a slave to Pharaoh or a slave Mm -hmm. to uh, the economy of acquisition. Mm -hmm. You know, you're set free from all of that. Your question. And so now we're doing something different with God. Mm -hmm. And your question about whether this is a dig, that's an interesting one. And it had occurred to me as well. I think, so what Paul is certainly saying is that you were you had the status of slave when you were under the power of Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Paul is thinking you had the service of slave under the power of sin and death mm-hmm. that is manifested in empires from mm-hmm. Pharaoh to Rome. Mm-hmm. Now you belong still to someone else, but you belong to God's family as children, not as mm-hmm. slaves. Mm-hmm. So you, you're still part of a household. You still have responsibilities. You still mm-hmm. have a potter familias, right? But mm-hmm. you're not a slave. You're a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like what I hear is Hosea saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Right? Yeah. So that that theology is also Hebrew Bible theology. That the relate, like there are obligations that Israelites do have to God, but they have them as children. I mean, there is also the language of yeah. servant or slave in there as well. And I think Paul would absolutely affirm that there are Christian responsibilities, like being a, belonging to this family have responsibilities. So I want to read it not as a dig, but as a, mm-hmm. as a restatement, emphasizing that status shift, which is also yeah. in the Israelite tradition, Jewish tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the, the family, the children within a family metaphor, and you know, certainly adoption is... It just brings up a whole other world of yeah. associations that is yeah. really fruitful. Yeah. I think that language of adoption is also acknowledging mm. that God already has a people who are God's children, and that is the Jews. And so now when we're talking to a at least partially Gentile audience in Rome, there is an adoption. Like the family has gotten bigger, acknowledging yeah. that there are already children who are part of that family. And now these new folks are getting enfolded as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That language, with the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Or you can read it as the spirit empowers us to cry, Abba, Father. And what? how does the NRSV read that? The end of verse 15? When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Yeah. So there's somehow this uh, is the spirit that enables us or bears a witness in us or something that allows us to call God Father. That word Abba there is just Aramaic Mm -hmm. for Father, which probably would have been the way Jesus referred to God at points. And so it's very, I read it as very personal. Yeah. Verse 17, so if we're children, we're heirs. So this is just thinking about inheritance law, basically, I guess, and fellow heirs with Christ. And so we like, that's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So Christ is the heir, but we are sort of like brought along that in that, or at least Paul's audience is. Then this last little phrase here, if we really suffer with him so that we can be glorified with him. I was loving where we were headed until we, until we got to there. <laughs> Do you have a sense of like how you read that a bit about suffering? 
and glorification? I mean, I don't know if I have a very helpful sense. I think I was like just sort of noodling around with this family metaphor and and how like family is so, for me, is so fundamentally who you are is is your tie to your family. But it is true that you can have more or less skin in the game yeah. with the fate of your family, you know? And, and so I guess I read this as saying like, there is, you are, you are a child in this family and you are invited and uh, asked to participate in these ways, but you also have a choice about how much you do that. And, yeah. and it will, and it will matter how much, how much you're sort of all in will, yeah. I mean, if, if you want to be in the family, then you got to be in the family. Yeah. I really like that. And the, so the family has a certain way that we, like, this is who we are. This is what we do. Like I, I yeah. tell my daughter that like, even though, I mean, she's only five, but I'm, you know, when I'm trying to think about how do we interact with people, I'm like, well, this is, this is what we do. Like we don't, you know, we don't force people to do things. Like we don't mm. use um, our fists, you know, like we have certain values. And mm-hmm. so here's our, here's our values. And that's the way we live in the world. And so this is saying there are certain kinds of ways that God's family lives in the world. And we can tell because Christ lived that way in the logic of Paul, that that's going to lead to suffering Mm -hmm. in the presence of a world that operates under a whole different logic. And so you're going to go out, you know, all peace and love and reconciliation. And that's not the way the world is going to be. And so it's going to, it's not going to treat you well. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. If you're truly living it out, it might not go great. Sometimes it's hard for me as an American Christian to get my head around that. You know what I mean? Like in Rome, first century, that probably was true. Now it is often Christians who are sort of throwing the elbows, especially in this cultural mm-hmm. moment. It is a very, I think you're right that it is a very different thing to be that the sort of majority culture, the, the culture that is, I mean, it's hard, that is theoretically in power. Like we certainly could debate the extent to which Christian values really drive the workings of our country versus like some kind of performative Christianity that gets right. all commingled with power and, you know, all that stuff. But I think that, I think that's important to think about the setting in which this was said and that the setting that, that we're in mm-hmm. now in the world. And uh, yeah, it, it's different. The context matters. Are there other things you want to pull out of this first section, 14 to 17? I just, I want to say just one little thing, and I think maybe it's a little bit silly, but I want to say say it anyway. You know, I think this, talking about a spirit of adoption to mm-hmm. me, like ties in an interesting way to what we were talking about before, how like this new church, this new people yes. that is emerging is is a, is a diverse group of folk um, that are coming together as a family and come from many different backgrounds. And I just, for some reason, I feel compelled to say that as, as a modern Jew, it would never occur to me to differentiate the kind of relationship that the people Israel has with God versus the kind of relationship that Christians have with God in terms of like, in these terms. Like I understand sort of for this moment, maybe for Paul's experience, what he's trying to say, but I don't know that it it sat, it sits a little strangely with me because it's just not, I just think of them as two different 
really, I, I, I don't know. It, I think it's interesting how much this metaphor of children and adoption comes up over the course of this next oh, area yeah. of text, which really makes me think like this was an important, this yeah. was important yeah. for what was going on in their, their minds and hearts at that time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I, I'm teaching a class on Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, or I taught this last semester. And that's one of the things, because, you know, for for most Christians, it's like, yeah, of course we're part of the same covenant as the Jews. And of course we're adopted into that world. And of course we're the same religion and we have the same God and we have the same everything. But then when you get to Islam, right, which which says the same thing about Christianity, like the New Testament really Mm. was a revelation from God, but it got corrupted and Jesus was a prophet, but not the son of God, but we're really kind of the same. Then Christian st- students often are like, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 that's not true. <laughs> right? And so it's right. the same thing. Right. Like it's the, the same, same thing, thing that Islam is yeah. doing to Christianity is what Christianity is doing to Judaism. Yeah. And so like on the one hand, I really appreciate that Islam wants to say like, yeah, we're related. Like we're part yeah. of a bigger whole. But uh, at, at the same time, I'm a little bit like, mm, yeah, but, and so like, like, are we right. really You don't get the last the word. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear that, man. Yeah. So it's helpful for you to say that this, like that's dynamic, see that dynamic going on here in this text. Hi, I'm Julie Holm. I'm the pastor of a small rural community in the UCC and the ELCA, the Brush Valley Fusion of Faith. I was an early Patreon supporter because I loved the podcasts on the Narrative Lectionary, but this year I became a Bible study and liturgy supporter. I'm part-time, and I love that I don't have to spend hours preparing for our Bible study every week. Plus, my group just loves Bobby's Bible studies. The liturgy also gives me a real heads up on putting a worship service together, which I appreciate as a part-time pastor. Amy's responses both as a deep Bible scholar of her scriptures and as a novice to the Christian scriptures deeply inform new ways of looking at scripture, and I really appreciate that. I love Bible Worm, and I'm so glad to support it. All right. The crux of this passage, I think, is 18 to 30. And so I'm going to just read that, even though it's kind of a long bit. I'm going to read that in one chunk. Mm. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it, but in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, I decided if we keep going, it's going to be too much. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) There's already too much to talk about there. So I, I, 
this idea that the whole of creation is waiting with anticipation because mm-hmm. creation has been subjected to frustration, like such interesting imagery. It's not just that people are waiting for the yeah. revelation, but the like the whole of everything. When you read yeah. that, do you have ways of getting into that or questions that occurred to you about it? I have plenty of questions. I I think the the best way I can sort of piece it together is to think back to the second creation story. Yes. Where I guess it's the second creation story. I mean, there's there's an idea, I guess, in both creation stories that that humans have a job here yeah. for caring for creation. And and you know, of course, we can some of the language maybe is problematic in terms of dominance, whatever. That's a topic for another day. <laughs> whatever. But <laughs> that's not our topic for today. But but if you have a if you have that kind of like critical role in care for creation and you're getting all tied up in sin and misdirection, then yeah, creation is waiting for you to get your act together. Yeah. I mean, just think about it when you have at moments when you have people in leadership in your government who are who don't who aren't doing what you feel like needs to be happening, all the more so I would imagine for creation that didn't get to vote humans into place right, in, exactly. yeah. in the first place. Yeah, I just see that as like, there are big ramifications for the ways in which humans have gotten, uh, have, have gone astray. And that, I think that's exactly right, Amy. That's really, really well said. So you know, if you read, I think reading it through the second creation story, Genesis two and three, it's probably the most direct route there, although you're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Both creations. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It. it is. It is. But mm-hmm. when you think of Adam as having been created exactly with the purpose of tilling and keeping the earth, and the very second thing he does after naming all the animals is to eat from the tree, and result, which results in the ground being cursed and enmity between humans and animals and all of these things. In Paul's logic, that moment was mm-hmm. the moment where sin, like sin, the power of sin as like this cosmic force took that opportunity of Adam's disobedience to like elbow into the world and become the reality of things. So that alienation between human beings and the earth, which is a product of disobedience and of sin, that's been, that's the world that we continue to live in and humans have abdicated according to this text, our role as caretakers of creation. And so our sinfulness has terrible effects, which is why Paul says, I think, not that it's the creation is anticipating its own redemption, but it's anticipating in verse 19, the revelation of God's children. That mm-hmm. is, if God's children would truly act like God's children, then creation mm-hmm. would experience a redemption because mm-hmm. it's our job to care for creation but we don't do it, most of us, and we never have done it because yeah. we, we took a wrong step right out of the gate. Yeah. The language that Paul uses or the imagery in verse 22 is about mm-hmm. creation groaning and suffering labor pains. Yeah. I'm just, I'm always interested, well, first of all, that Paul uses that imagery, probably not knowing any more than I do about labor pains. <laughs> I'm just curious when you read that sort of imagery of labor pains and creation, 
groaning in anticipation. What, where does that metaphor take you? You know, it takes me to, I think we, I think I've mentioned this. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this before, but it, it actually takes me again to the story of the crossing of the Red Sea Mm. in that, in that particular, there's, there's a project called Beit Torah Tau, the regendered Bible where they flip all the genders of everything. And it makes the story read like a birth. Mm -hmm. And that really has changed the way that I think about so much in, in the Bible. But here it is sort of like imports all the like genuine pain and terror that is real. Yes. And, but not in a sort of like warlike violent, not that kind of violence. And then also that, you know, the birth of something new. I mean, I, you know, I have in the back of my head, like, yes, the birth pangs of the Messiah. Yes. Yes. Like we, you know, there, we know that things will, I, I don't know, but I guess that phrase has become stale in my mind. Cause I hear mm. it. I have heard it enough. I don't know. I, I, I like it because the, the pain and the danger are real. Like it's yes. not, this is not just like some kind of sanitized, you know, lovely, <laughs> oh, look, it's a sweet baby. Like mm-hmm. people die in childbirth, certainly yeah. all the more so in this time, but it is also what is required for something new to happen for, you know, for a new community or a new reality to be born. And um Yeah. I don't know I really another metaphor that, that would tie all that up together. Yeah, that was, that's such a beautiful interpretation. Paul then goes on to say, we are also groaning in the, in the same way as we wait to be adopted and our bodies to be set free. When mm. you think of it the way you were just talking about it, once the spirit, once we have seen for Paul Christ resurrected and we have received the spirit, we can see the future that is possible but we are also very much aware that we're not there yet. Mm. And so this, what you're talking about is the, the pain and the fear are very much present and very much real. And also you can see the new life that mm-hmm. is yet about to come into the world, mm-hmm. but it still feels a little fragile. Mm-hmm. You're never quite sure until you hold that little baby mm-hmm. that it's all going to come out right. Mm-hmm. And so those who have the spirit and can see that another world is possible. I, I think Paul is saying people who are still enslaved to the Pharaoh, the still enslaved to the power of sin and death don't know in Paul's logic, I mm-hmm. think that another world is possible. Mm-hmm. But once you've sort of realized, then you experience the pain of the world in a different way. It's a hopeful, it's a hopeful pain. In a way that it's doesn't a hopeful erase pain, the pain. But it's also like the other thing, you know, I'm sure I've told you that my experience in labor, I spent half the time saying like, I cannot believe this is where babies come from. Like this is <laughs> actually, like, this is, re- this is a ridiculous system, but you can't, you, you can't undo it. Like once you've seen yeah. the possibility of that birth, like you're in labor and yeah. it is dangerous and you might die and it's really painful and it's terrifying yeah. and you can't, you can't change your mind and not do it anymore. Like once you really get it, yeah. once you really get it, you really get it. And it, and it does have all the hope and all that, like all those beautiful things that you're, that you're talking about, but it also has, people should be, I think in Paul's vision, like so compelled by this once yeah. they've seen it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. 
and that sometimes will be really hard and you'll wish you could unsee it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. This verse 24, we were saved in hope. If we already see what Mm -hmm. we hope for, that's not hope. Who hopes Mm -hmm. for what they already see? Mm -hmm. If we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Mm -hmm. What do you think Paul is up to right there? I, okay, I'm assuming, I don't know, I guess my best guess is that he's he's going for this idea that, like, maybe there has to be some mysterious, something mysterious about it. Like, it can't, it can't be something quite so concrete that you can, like, if you see it, it's almost like it's already happened. Like, yeah. that's not hope. If it's, it's already there. Yeah. <laughs> like, hope has to be this sort of bigger thing that, you know, it, as connected to, I think we've said before, like, it's not really faith if you can confirm it. If you can confirm right. it, then you just know. You know, like, it's, that's what I sort of, like, it has this sense of, like, longing yeah. about it and reaching and, like, reaching beyond what you can know and see and touch. I don't know that I wait for those things with patience, but Paul, <laughs> yeah. Paul seems to. What? How do you read that? I read it, I think, quite similarly. That so In Paul's idea, like the resurrection of Jesus, for Paul, means that the world has changed. Yeah. And therefore, human beings have been saved. But there is a fulfillment of that, which is yet still to come in the future. So we live in this moment in between times where the fullness of the power of sin and death is no longer in the world, but the fullness of God's reign is not yet in the world, and we're caught in the middle. And so it's this sort of birthing process that you're talking about. And so then the question might be, well, if Christ has been raised, why is the world still so messed up? Mm-hmm. And I think what Paul is saying is it's you live in the hope, right, that there is yet a future coming. And so you can't ask what, I mean, you can ask, but mm-hmm. it's not fruitful for, in Paul's mind to ask, why is the world still like this? Because mm-hmm. we're living toward something that has not yet been fully realized. We're living toward a birth that has not yet happened. And so we have to go through this sort of birthing process, confident at the outcome, mm-hmm. but not expecting that we should already have arrived at the outcome. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he's up to. No, I think, yeah, I I think that makes sense. (laughs) All right. In verse 26, in the same way, the spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the spirit thinks because he pleads for the saints consistent with God's will. We know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know this because God knew them in advance, and he decided in advance that they would be conformed to the image of his son. That way, his son would be first of many brothers and sisters. Those who God decided in advance would be conformed to his son, he also called. Those whom he called, he also made righteous. Those whom he made righteous, he also glorified. I want to start with verse 28, which gets quoted out of context quite a lot. We know that God works all things together for good for those for the ones who love God. Mm. you have thoughts about that idea of God working things together for good? I think it really changes what good means. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think whenever I hear people say things like that, 
you, you know, or, or during the height of the pandemic, there were a lot of homes in my neighborhood that had these signs that said, everything will be okay. And, and it just always made me think like, that is true, depending what you mean by okay. Right. <laughs> it is not necessarily going to be okay by measures that we would hold as something that is okay. I don't know. That's sort of the best. Because, I mean, I, I think what you're getting at is that that sort of can be a, a dangerous, uh, I don't know, that, that verse can almost be like weaponized against people who are suffering. Like you're yeah. not really suffering because it's yeah. for the good. Or can have us be, get a little lazy in our advocacy work for the change that we think should be yeah. happening in the world. How do you, what kind of, what's what's the the good, the positive? So those are some, some yeah. troublesome ways to read it, but what would, how would you address this differently? Yeah, no, I really, I really appreciate what you're saying there. And sometimes people, I've heard people read this as God intended this terrible thing that happened to you for good, mm. which I think is a terrible misreading of this passage. What I think it properly means is the God of the Bible is capable of bringing something good out of even the most horrifying situation. So there is there is nothing that could happen that God cannot find some way to, to turn toward the good. Like the mm-hmm. horrible thing that has happened is not the end of that story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is an attempt to not dismiss the horribleness of whatever has happened, but to say there is some way in which this this can be moved towards something better. I think in Paul's mind, there is also an ultimacy here. Like Paul has just come from saying, God wills the redemption of all creation. And so I think he understands that in the long scheme, everything works out for good for all of creation. In the meantime, there's a lot of pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so there is yet still a future Mm -hmm. in which it all works out for the good. Mm -hmm. But we struggle in the present trying trying to work towards something at least better than what we currently are experiencing. Mm -hmm. It's delicate. And even as I'm saying it, I can't quite, I can't quite say it the way that I'm, that I mean it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. There's a Hebrew phrase we say a lot, gamzela tova, which takes God out of it, but it's just, even this is for the good. Like you have to believe that somehow or other it will be for the good. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the central things in Paul's theology is the crucifixion of Christ. And so, Mm -hmm. like, that was a horrible, horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And yet, it was turned for the good. And Mm -hmm. so, like, sometimes we think if you really believe everything ought to be fine all the time. Mm -hmm. And I like to point out to people that, like, if you really think that, then you probably shouldn't be Christian, right? Because the the center of the faith is this, like the powers of sin and death in the world executed Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a long game that is being played here with plenty of difficulty in the meantime. It's not very comforting in the, in the exact moment though. It's yeah. yeah. The suffering is real and the danger is real. And yes. 
Now, verse 29, we know this. That is, we know all things work for good because God knew them in advance, decided they would be conformed, created the family, right? Um, so Paul is imagining now the sort of family of family of God, brothers and sisters and siblings of Jesus who will be made righteous and glorified. And that's how we know all things will work out for good, or at least that's how I read the logic of this passage. Mm-hmm. I think what Paul is after here, I mean, I really think that Paul is putting a lot of weight on the transformation of Christians, that when Christians realize who we are created to be, we will work in the world in such a way that will undo, reframe, restructure Mm -hmm. some of the horrible things that sin and death accomplish in the world. Eventually, there's this sort of ultimate transformation of the world. But I think Paul imagines that if the people of God would recognize that we're the people of God, then this, then this transformation of the world could get started here and now. I think that's what he's after. It's a complicated set of verses, though. It is it, yes. It's it. I would have in the margin here, like, is this Presbyterianism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think it is like this is a very Presbyterian friendly uh, idea about predestination. The NRSV actually uses predestination, doesn't it? Predestined? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The CEB, which is a Methodist translation, kind of skirts around that a little That's bit. That's funny. Decided in advance, knew in advance. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, maybe so. And also to keep in mind that Paul just said that God is anticipating the redemption of all creation. And so even if it is sort of yeah. a foreknown group of people, in the same way that Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham's blessing was for all the earth. So I think here too, those who are foreknown, that the end goal is the, is the blessing, the transformation, the redemption of all, of all creation. Mm. Right, there's yet one more section of this text. One more section. Yeah, take us home, Bobby. Which is one of my, I don't know, this is such an interesting passage. So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Christ who died, even more who was raised, and who also is at God's side. It is Christ Jesus who pleads our case for us. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. The most common setting that I've heard this text is at funeral services, Christian funeral Mm -hmm. service, which I think is a very appropriate funeral text. I once preached it at a baptism of my niece and nephew, because I actually think this is a better baptism text mm-hmm. than it is a, f- a funeral text. Yeah, I would not have said funeral for this. Oh, that's interesting. 
I think it's just that death can't separate us from the love of God. Yeah. What would you have said for this text? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess more more broadly, hard times, you know, mm-hmm. like when the whole world seems against you and I don't, yeah, like everything, everything from this earthly world around you is, seems to be upside down and backwards and. Yeah. Which certainly would happen at the moment of the death of a loved one. Right. Yeah. I guess I can see that. I think that's the connection that gets made. It's for the, yeah. it's for the family of the person who has died to say your world has been turned upside down. Mm-hmm. And yet the love of God is the, is the ultimate reality. I like the way you said that about struggle, difficulty. And, and this is the reason that I preached it as a baptism text. It's because I, I think Paul's logic is that once you have been baptized into the way of Christ, then you can see the world the way God intends it. And you know that there is a possibility that is different than the one that is given to you by the powers that rule the, mm-hmm. the world currently. Mm-hmm. And you know it, you can see it, you long for it, it mm-hmm. you ache for it, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it hurts. You want the world to be different than it is. And that can be frustrating, that can be debilitating. And so Paul is saying, "You're look, baptized person, your life is going to be like that. You're always going to wish that the world was like the world you can see out there someplace, like the world that you know is possible and not like the world that you see when you walk out the front door and, and or read the newspaper. But even in that reality, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Like that is the, that is the ultimate reality in which you live. And so you have to hope for things which you cannot yet see, yeah. knowing that you've been surrounded by God's love. Yeah, there's something, I'm afraid this is going to come out as though I feel like suffering is not real, which is certainly not what I mean. But I know that at, at particularly hard moments in my life, I have often had moments where it was almost like a switch flipped. And I was like, I cannot orient myself entirely toward this suffering or toward my drive mm-hmm. to alleviate the suffering mm-hmm. because it is beyond what I can do. And I'm going to, I'm going to lose it. Like I, mm-hmm. I can't, I have to orient to something that is more true and bigger and that I don't understand and can't necessarily predict, but I, to this like much larger reality of God in the world and God's love. And I mean, I don't usually think of that phrase in particular. I mean, I, the phrase I think of in Hebrew is ain od. There is nothing else. That Mm. is the only thing there is. And there's all this other stuff, but it's not as real as the real, real. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. Can you can you help me with that Ain Ode a little more? I, I'm really intrigued by that, and I'm not sure I've quite gotten all the way there. I mean, Ain Ode, like there there is there is nothing there is nothing that is really true, capital T true, other than God. Mm. So there are all kinds of there are all kinds of forces at play in the world and and they are uh they are all they're all nothing in the face of the reality of God. And so if you can orient yourself to that reality, that stuff is still there, but it's less mm-hmm. scary. I love that, Amy. And I think that makes like this last verse or the last two verses, 38, there's n- nothing that can separate us. So mm-hmm. these things are not 
as powerful as you think they are or as they think they are. The first one is death. The second one is life, which is really interesting. Like life doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Angels are rulers, powers are heights or depths. Like this idea that the powers that rule the present world, which seems so dominant, they're really not. I like that idea. Like there is nothing other. And then I think where Paul is pushing is the essence of God, who is there is nothing other, is love. Mm-hmm. And so you're always surrounded by that love. And you you know, going all the way back to 32, that that love is real because God was willing. Paul always is going back to the crucifixion, whatever we think about that. Mm-hmm. But God allowed Jesus to be killed by the world and resurrected. And so in order to demonstrate this, and so how on earth, now that that's happened, how on earth would you ever think that God's not going to treat us well too? Like mm. now now that the resurrection has happened, how could we ever doubt that God has those plans for us? I don't know. It's not, like I, I struggle with crucifixion as a center of theology, but the way that Paul talks about it for me is pretty compelling. Mm. This line at the end about principalities and powers or what can separate us and like, I, you know, me being who I am, I'm always reading things in terms of empire. And I think one can read it bigger than that. I think Paul is thinking much bigger than that. But that, that idea that there are ruling authorities that pretend that they are more powerful than the power of life, the power of love, the power of God in the world, but they're really not. Yeah. Anything else we should say about this section? I would just say that it 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 pulls a lot on Psalm 118 for me, this sort of first part. Yeah. You know, if God is for us, who is against us? Yeah. And that is that is my MVP of Psalms. Psalm 118, man. The best. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. All right, Amy. So we've got this complex text. We've got that Acts 2 text about the It feels the like a week ago that we talked <laughs> about know, that already. I know. Uh, we've got Shavuot, Pentecost. We've got a whole mix of things to think about mm. as you're connecting whatever is speaking to you today into that mm. situation. What's coming to the fore for you? I think what's coming to the fore for me might be weird, Bobby, but here it is. Here it is. I'm really sort of, I'm thinking about this, you know, Ain Ode, There Is Nothing Else, and I'm thinking about sort of Jewish mystical traditions that sort of suggest that God and godliness is is everywhere and everything. And like they're really, like really the boundaries that we see mm. between entities and things and all these structures that we put in our in our in our world, it's like they're like holograms. Like they're not really there, but mm. they look like they're there to us. You have to change your angle to see that they're they're not really there. Like we're all part of this one big beautiful, godly thing. And there is a Mm. a verse earlier in here, verse 26, that in my translation, it says, um, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Mm. Yeah. And that for me was just another, you know, we've talked about creation and all the things that went well and not so well. And in addition to the whole Apple situation, the other thing Adam did was name everything 
And, and we were supposed to name things. Like, that wasn't supposed to be a bad thing, but I don't know. There, there are Jewish teachings that by trying to encapsulate everything into, into words and, like, separate everything out into its most discrete parts, that we do harm to the whole in some way. Like, there, there, things are connected, and there's a oneness that we can't, we can't get at that way. And so it is through size, and it is through music, and it is through— uh, I, you know, it, it is not through, through words and structures and, mm-hmm. you know, clear theologies that we're able to get to all that stuff, even though that's what we have, right? That's what we have and that's what we use. And this text is just bringing up all that stuff for me that's really hard to put words around because yeah. it, it intentionally refuses words, but that's where it's leaving me, Bobby. Ain't owed. I love that, Amy, and I love that size too deep for words. The CEB gives it as unexpressed groans. Yeah. Which just doesn't <laughs> oh <my> quite. God, <laughs> so I realized I just skipped by that because I, I just like the way it's translated here. I was like, eh, but size too deep for words. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. What is this pulling up for you? I love that way of thinking about everything as connected and the illusions that are around us. I don't think Paul is thinking about that exactly. No, I probably not. But I do think that Paul has the the idea that that's the way that the world is supposed to be. That's the way it was created. That's the way it Mm -hmm. should again someday be, that everything is connected. Uh, There is animals and plants and people are all part of one ecosystem that works and everyone flourishes, that God is present among and with us in the way that it was in Genesis 2. And then the thing happened in Genesis 3. And Mm -hmm. so whether we want to, we could think about that as illusion or Paul thinks about it as the power of death, the power of sin entered into the world and, and disrupted all of that. What is happening in this text, which I think is so beautiful, is that it has the idea that all of that needs to be restored to its original wholeness. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is about the restoration of everything. And in Paul's mind, the first step of that is that the people of God need to remember that we are the people of God and that our original task was to steward and tend and work for the wholeness of all things. Mm. That is his hope is that well the people will wake up and realize and start and start living that way even though it seems impossible to live that way. I think this is how he gets into the idea of groaning for things that we cannot yet achieve and the, the hope of things that are not yet realized. We're supposed to live in a world that doesn't exist, but is supposed to exist. And that is a difficult place to be. And yet that's what we're called to. It takes me back to that Acts 2 text where the first gift is the gift of language, which to me is about the restoration of the human community. If if we can learn to relate cross-culturally, mm. not by expecting everyone to understand us, but by learning to express ourselves in ways that people can hear in their own language and idiom, that is a step toward the restoration of humanity, which is a step toward the restoration of creation. I don't know. Like, I feel like that is at the same time sort of small and also enormous. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I love how that sort of, that you know, that I, that I came back to language in mind and the way that it divides things and that you pulled it back into the, the ability to cross over boundaries and language, which at least takes out some of that division, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amy, that brings us to the end of this season of the Narrative Lectionary. Yeah. Season four. We'll actually be back a couple of, uh, with a couple of episodes for our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible. So we did a few of these back in the fall as special episodes. So we've we've already talked about Tamar and Rahav and Bathsheba. Next week, we're going to be talking about Hagar and uh, Sarah. And then we'll talk about Miriam and the daughters of Zelophehad. So that's Mm -hmm. where we're headed for people who choose to join us for the summer series, which we hope that you will. If not, then we'll start back with year two of the Narrative Lectionary sometime in August. Yeah. And there's a um, a lovely tradition in the Jewish community that when you finish a full cycle of readings, you immediately start the next cycle. So there's never a time of year that you are outside the cycle. Mm-hmm. And so since we are formally concluding our season of Narrative Lectionary for now— May I read the first few verses of next year so we will not be outside of our text? That would be wonderful. Okay. So we're starting next year in the second creation story, which is Genesis 2, verse 4, the second half of it. When Adonai made earth and heaven, when no shrub of the field was yet on earth and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted because Adonai had not sent rain upon the earth and there were no human beings to till the soil but a flow would well up from the ground and water the whole surface of the earth. Adonai formed the human from the soil, blowing into its nostrils the breath of life. The human became a living being. Beautiful. Thanks for that, Amy. We'll pick it up next time. And y'all, stay with us over the summer. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a good time. We will. All right, Amy. I'll see you next week. And we'll talk about Sarah and Hagar. Sounds good. See you then. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll begin our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible with the story of Sarah and Hagar in Genesis 17, 